Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to, be, to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, uh, help us to take on your yoke, to learn your ways, to live the life that you've called us to live. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Jesus dismantled the religion of his day. He said things that shocked the religious leaders. He did things that horrified the religious leaders. He was introducing a new kingdom, a kingdom based on a new way of living. L let me show you how it works. Let me, let me explain what he did. See, in, in Jesus' day, rabbis uh, had their own sets of teaching. Each rabbi would have their own teaching. The teaching was called a yoke. It was named for the farm implement that was used to link together two beasts of burden, oxen or horses. Uh, it was put on the animals to help them pull a plow or a wagon or some other heavy burden. And so the rabbis called their teachings yokes. Now, of course, the teachings would have included the 613 commandments from the Law of Moses. Uh, their disciples would have to learn all 613 of those commandments, but that would have been standard in everybody's yoke. But then each rabbi would add their own interpretations of all of those laws. So exactly what does it mean to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy? The rabbis would have their list of explanations for that. What does it mean to honor father and mother? They would have their explanations for that. Under what conditions can someone get a divorce? And on and on it would go through all of the law of Moses. And so you would, uh, rabbis would develop this tremendous, cumbersome, heavy list of requirements for following the law. Their disciples would have to memorize that yoke and then would have to live by that yoke if they wanted to be that rabbi's disciple. Rabbis notoriously argued with one another about who had the better yoke, about who had the right interpretation of the law. It became too much for many to bear. Many in Jesus' day would have walked away from it altogether, deciding that the burden of religion was just too heavy a burden for any ordinary person to carry. It's to that crowd that Jesus spoke. Said, if you're worn out by your religion, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, Jesus was not really talking about people under financial burden or under burden of family problems 
or under uh, are underburdened with work or, or home life issues, although Jesus certainly gives us rest from all of those things. But Jesus was addressing the religious system of the day, and he said, if you're worn out by your religion, come to me, and I'll give you rest. Jesus offers a new yoke. Jesus' yoke is symbolized by the stole that I wear on Sunday mornings. It's a reminder uh, that of my allegiance to my rabbi's teaching. But Jesus' yoke was different. It was wildly different from anything that first century people had heard before. Uh, Jesus' yoke didn't have 613 commandments like everybody else's. His yoke had two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus uh, boiled the entirety of the law down to these two laws. And that made up his yoke. That's why Jesus is able to say, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You don't have to memorize all of that other stuff. But it's not a matter of just memorizing the ideas. It's living them out. And so Jesus demonstrated what living with his yoke looks like. He demonstrated that kind of love as he moved throughout the, uh, throughout the communities. Uh, remember, he met the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman who had been married five times and was now living with a man to whom she was not married. Jesus entered into a conversation with her and offered grace. He loved her, even though her lifestyle would have made her offensive to the religious folks of the day. Jesus loved her. You may remember how he responded to the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. He says, uh, where are those who condemn you? He says to the woman. She says, none, Lord. There are no. There are none. He says, neither do I condemn you. We see Jesus living out his yoke when he meets the tax collector, Zacchaeus, this rich tax collector who's been stealing from, uh, stealing from Jews for years. He's up in a tree because he's a short guy and he wants to see Jesus walk by. Jesus says, come on down, Zacchaeus. I'm going to your house today. We're going to have a party at your house. Jesus goes in to the home of a sinner, absolutely forbidden by the religious folks of his day. And Zacchaeus is saved through the party. You even look at the people that Jesus called to be around him. Among Jesus' 12 disciples, we find Matthew, also a tax collector. Now that means that he is a loyalist to Rome. Matthew has been stealing money from Jews to give to Rome. He's, you, Rome would call him a patriot. But also in the group is a guy named Simon the Zealot. Now, the word zealot in our language really means terrorist. Simon had dedicated his life to the violent overthrow of Rome. And Jesus demonstrates his yoke by inviting these two polar opposites to be a part of his inner 12. He sits down at the table with the patriot and the terrorist and somehow brings them together. It's a, I wonder how many times somebody had to pull the two of those apart. You know, how many times did Matthew and Simon go at one another if somebody had to break it up? But yet Jesus saw value in having both of them in his inner 12. That's what 
his yoke looks like. That's what his kingdom looks like. He came in to replace a cumbersome, heavy system of religion with a new yoke that brings rest to our souls. A kingdom built on love. Sadly, it didn't take the church long to start rebuilding what Jesus tore down. Jesus tore down a cumbersome religious system and the church quickly went to work to rebuild a cumbersome religious system. Uh, one example from history I think will make the point. Please bear with me as I delve back into some early church history. A guy named Athanasius was consecrated as Bishop of Alexandria, Egypt in the year 326. Now, during Athanasius' career as bishop, he was exiled five times by four different emperors. He just kept getting in trouble. Uh, and when you dig a little deeper, you find out the source of his problems. He was in an ongoing debate with a guy named Arius. Now, bear with me while I, I kind of set the scene for you. Arius uh, spoke up, an early teacher in the church, and he said, because Jesus is God's son, then Jesus, the Son, must be younger than the Father. He was reasoning from human ways of being, and obviously my Son is younger than I am, I'm younger than my Father was, and so Arius said that therefore Jesus must be younger than God the Father, that Jesus was created by the Father. That was Arius' position. Uh, Athanasius came along and offered the counterposition Athanasius said uh, no, that that kind of reasoning doesn't work, that if Jesus was not fully God, we may not be fully saved. And so Athanasius argues beautifully that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father, that Jesus is begotten, not made. Now the church sided with Athanasius in the Council of Nicaea. The church said that Athanasius' view was right, in fact, it's written into our creed. You can look at the Nicene Creed and you see those words, begotten, not made, true God from true God. That's Athanasius' argument. So he wins the argument, but the Arians don't go away. And so for the rest of Athanasius' life, there's this ongoing debate between the Arians and the disciples of Athanasius. It's starting to sound a little bit like rabbis arguing over their yokes. You see how uh, 300 years after Jesus we're right back to arguing over whose teaching is the best. And the emperors would exile Athanasius whenever they disagreed with him. Now his argument never changed, but, but uh, as the political mood would shift, whenever, those, whenever the Arians were popular, the emperor would exile Athanasius so that he could unite the empire around one teaching. It wasn't really that the empire was that the emperor was concerned with who was right. He just wanted everybody to be at peace, and so he would get rid of Athanasius. And then, when the disciples of Athanasius gained in popularity, then Athanasius would come back and live in peace. And so, in and out of the kingdom he went, or in and out of the empire he went, over his whole life, all over this argument about who was right. Now, these are important arguments. They are creedal arguments. And it's important for us to understand that the church for 1,700 years has said that Athanasius was right. And so they are important arguments to have, but I would suggest to you that at least as far as this debate goes, the early church was more concerned about being right than doing right. 
They were more concerned with a set of teachings than they were with living the life that Jesus actually called us to live. Now, I hope you can see from that kind of cumbersome example that uh, in 17 years we have 1,700 years we've not changed a whole lot. Even after 1,700 years, we still get tangled up in wanting to be right. We we clamor for the high ground on all of the hot button issues of the day. We want to have the right opinion on things like race relations, uh, on human sexuality, on poverty, on entitlements, on welfare, on abortion, on capital punishment, and the list goes on. We want to make sure that we have the right opinion on those things. Again, sometimes I wonder if we are more concerned with being right than doing right. Once we've formulated our opinions, then we tend to align ourselves with people who agree with us. We want to uh, we want to hang out with people that hold our same view on all of those hot button issues. I can't help but notice how different that is from the group of disciples that Jesus called. Jesus called these people with wildly different views into one group, but it seems to be our uh, our tendency to align ourselves with people that, that hold the same view, that think the same way about all those hot button issues that we do. That way, that way we can claim to be on the inside because of course we are right. And we can point at all those others and say they're on the outside. We're right, they're wrong. We can judge them because they're not like us. We can justify ourselves because we're not like them. That's sounding a whole lot like the yoke of the rabbis of Jesus' day that was weighing people down. When we think that way, when we're, when we're so consumed with being right, more so than doing right, we, we attack one another, we attack the others for being wrong. But haven't we had enough division? Aren't we? Tired of attacking one another? Aren't we tired of tearing the other down? Isn't that a yoke that's too heavy to carry? And so Jesus still calls to us. All of you, all of us, religious folk who are weighed down with the burdens of our religion. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. One of the happiest days of my entire faith journey, one of the most joy-filled days of my faith journey, was when I realized that it wasn't my burden to figure out who's wrong and right. That God did not invest in me the responsibility of determining right and wrong, in and out. That's God's responsibility, not mine. When I discovered that, I felt this huge, I felt the burden come off my shoulders. I discovered the joy and the freedom to just love people, all people. Whether I agreed with them or not, whether I thought they were the wrong ones in the wrong or not, I began to discover the opportunity to love people. Wow, the burden got lighter. That's a yoke I'm ready to take on. I'm willing to take on. So for the rest of the time I have in this life, what I hope for myself, and let's be honest, I'm going to get it wrong sometimes. 
But what I hope for myself with the rest of the time that I have is that I will live out that like yoke of Christ by loving others. Once we can have people in our home again, I want to gather around the dinner, dinner table with people from all sorts of backgrounds. I want to sit down and eat a meal with people that the old me, the, the, the me of 20 years ago, never would have been in the room with. I want to be able to sit down with people with whom I disagree and share a meal and share ideas and share the love of Christ. I, I don't want to just spend the rest of my time being right about poverty. I want to also spend my time working with children in under-resourced schools, being present in communities that are hurting to do right. It's not enough to have the right ideas. We have to somehow do the right thing. That's what Jesus calls us to do. I want to spend the rest of my time building real relationships, life-transforming relationships with people who have given up on church, with people who have given up on God. I want to love those people and develop meaningful relationships with them that hopefully will be life-changing. That's the way I envision living with this yoke of Christ. How about you? What does it look like for you to put on the yoke of Christ? It's got to be more than right ideas. It's got to be action. Who is it that you're going to choose to love? Who will you reach out to in life-transforming ways? How will you make a difference for justice and for mercy and for peace in our world? In what ways will you choose to, to do right even more than be right? I pray that together, that with a lot of prayer, a lot of study, a lot of worship time together, I pray that we will learn to live and love like Jesus, that God's kingdom might come on earth. Amen. Mm -hmm.